This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sleep to Win, Secrets to Unlocking Your Athletic Excellence in Every Sport. And the author is Dr. James B. Moss, and Dr. Moss joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Hello, Steve. Nice to be with you. Well, great to have you with us. We're going to learn a lot about sleeping and the importance of it. And so many of us abuse this this needed daily exercise, and you'll tell us about the details. Let me give a, a little bit more about your book by reading some things you've written. You say this, given that most of us have had the dream of becoming a better athlete, there is now a distinct possibility To make that happen, Sleep to Win offers a wake-up call on how to improve performance and be a winner. And you list all kinds of different positions, different sports that you could be involved with, even the citizen golfer, the senior citizen golfer who wants to shoot their age. So research has shown us that when we get enough sleep, we're able to accomplish more. And, of course, as an athlete... Greater skill, endurance, better mood, boy, it all makes sense, but we violate that rule so much. But first, before we get into the details, Doctor, uh, give us your background and why you decided to write this book. Sure. (laughs) My background is that uh, way back in 1969, when I was a beginning uh, professor at Cornell University, I wanted to, in my introductory psychology course, talk about all aspects of life, not only waking life, but sleep as well, because we should be sleeping about a third of our lives to be fully alert, efficient, effective all day long. And uh, I went out to Stanford to work with Dr. William DeMent, who is the great grandfather of modern-day sleep research. He's the one who... Uh, with his colleagues, discovered that uh, tracking eye movements during sleep was a key to the theater of the night, to knowing when people were dreaming. And I made a little film with Bill DeMent uh, on Thanksgiving night in 1969, where he hooked up one of his graduate students, uh, put them uh, into a quiet, dark, cool bedroom, asked them to go to sleep, and then Bill and I went into the control room and uh, watched the electric uh, electroencephalography uh, <clears throat> uh, recordings of the sleeper's brain waves. And nothing much was happening until 90 minutes into the night when the electrodes showed great activities. And we walked into the bedroom, and Dr. DeMent said to the subject, what was just going through your mind? And he said, I was having a dream, and then we asked him what the dream was about. And I was so fascinated that you could capture a dream in the middle of the night that that very night I decided uh, that I was going to become a sleep researcher, and there were probably 30 or 40 in the world at that point. Uh, So I was in on the ground floor, but I spent uh, the rest of my career uh, indeed studying uh, sleep, this fascinating activity that happens during the night. In fact, the sleeping brain is more active 
at night than it ever is during the day. But to make a long story short, I spent uh, 48 years as a professor at Cornell. I, I'm fortunate enough to have the world's record for having taught uh, 65,000 uh, college students introductory psychology in that career. And uh, now I'm spending full time as a retired professor as a speaker, which I've been doing uh, all during my teaching career as well, but now full time talking to corporations, to schools, to universities, and now to professional athletic franchises about the need for sleep. Steve, the problem is that 71% of us don't get enough sleep, and this has incredibly dire consequences for our life and our well-being. Uh, it causes drowsiness during the day, uh, increased risk of heart attacks, uh, heart attacks and not only uh, uh, as a result of higher blood pressure, but strokes as well, increased uh, irritability, anxiety, depression, type 2 diabetes, uh, loss of sense of humor and, uh, humor and socialization skills, definitely loss of motor skills, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and decreased cognitive performance. Uh, we have a reduced ability to process, to concentrate, to remember, to communicate, to multitask, to be creative, to make critical decision skills. And in some, we have reduced health and performance. We have to do something about that. So for years, I worked with college students talking about sleep, showing them uh, that they weren't sleeping as much as they should. College students, anybody from puberty to uh, 26 years of age needs nine and a quarter hours of sleep every night to be fully alert all day long, and they average 6.1. They think they're getting about seven, but when we make objective measurements of actual sleep, turns out that, uh, that they are getting about 6.1. And certainly for the person in school trying to perform well on tests, that has very deleterious consequences. And we now have uh, objective proof that when people pay attention to their sleep, when we give them good sleep strategies, good sleep hygiene, uh, they improve their grade point average uh, almost overnight. And I began thinking, well, if this is happening to uh, the students in the classroom, what about on the athletic field. So we started to work with varsity teams in all sports, from wrestling to basketball to ice hockey, men and women. And we did this at Cornell. Uh, they've been doing it at Stanford in parallel with us. And what we find is when we train athletes to uh, have better sleep, they're very good at nutrition, they're very good at exercise, but they stink at sleep. And when we train them to be great sleepers, Literally overnight, their athletic performance improves, and we have incredible case histories, which we talk about in our new book, Sleep to Win, uh, that shows when we take an athlete, we get them the proper amount of sleep, we train them in good sleep hygiene, to have a quiet, their cool bedroom, uh, to avoid uh, electronics within an hour of bedtime, like computers and iPads, they're the worst, because... Uh, computers and iPads and even watching television puts out a lot of blue daylight spectrum light, which blocks melatonin, which inhibits you from going to sleep uh, uh, within maybe a half hour, an hour after you turn off uh, the light. So we have in this book all sorts of hints and tips that we've used with the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, colleges, high schools, middle schools, and overnight athletes, even the pros, 
raise their performance. That's impressive. <laughs> well, my big question first is, you're so busy, are you getting enough sleep? <laughs> Everybody asks me that whenever I go on the Today Show or Oprah or any of these shows. The first question I'm asked is, well, how do you sleep? Yeah. Uh, I try to get eight hours, and if I don't, uh, I don't speak as well, I don't write as well, I don't I... perform as well uh, on the golf course or wherever. And so I try to practice what I preach. Well, what uh, I... I've been known to leave uh, good parties fairly early in the evening, and people say, where are you going? And I say, I've got to get my eight hours of sleep. Now, when I'm on a big travel schedule, sometimes that's hard, shifting time zones. Sure. But uh, I then take power naps on the flight or uh, at the hotel, wherever I'm going. So, uh, 39 years ago, I invented the term power naps. Hmm. And I'm a firm believer in 10 or 15 minutes in the midday dip of alertness to uh, to take a break and uh, not so long as to put you into delta sleep and make you groggy when you wake up and not so long as to give you nocturnal insomnia, but just long enough to restore your energy for the rest of the day. The key word I hear is train. We have to train ourselves. This isn't, you know, it, it, often we say, well, when I get tired, I go to sleep, but that's not what you're talking about. No, you have to have a regular sleep-wake schedule. You have to go to bed and get up at the same time, Monday through Monday, including the weekends. You have one biological clock, not one for the work week and one for the weekends. And you have to entrain your body to be sleepy uh, during the sleep phase of your circadian rhythm and to be awake uh, when you're supposed to be awake. And if you keep varying that target of when you go to bed, your body never knows when to start to sleep. Now, you've mentioned the power nap. Uh, do we set an alarm to make sure we only sleep like 10 minutes? Well, people who are really exhausted better better alert uh, right. their colleagues, uh, Somebody, their huh? yeah. secretaries, their coaches, their teammates. Uh, we even have a little power nap clock that you can press a button and it'll give you uh, 15 minutes and then wake you up without re having to reset your morning clock. Uh, so we are firm believers in taking those power naps, and if you do, uh, you'll improve your conditioning. You'll reduce your chance of a heart attack or stroke, mm. uh, lower uh, blood pressure. All sorts of good things happen when you power nap. Now, if you get your sleep requirement every single night, you probably aren't going to be able to take or won't have to take a power nap, but that's not true for most of us. Now, what about the old saying or the myth or whatever you call it about those hours before midnight? The more the hours before midnight, the better the rest. Is that is that just a myth? And that's a myth. Uh, that's something that your parents and your grandparents <laughs> told you because they didn't want to stay up half the night waiting for you to come home <laughs> from a date or what have you. But if you were to go to bed every night at 2 in the morning and get your 8 hours of sleep or your 9 and a quarter hours of sleep, you'd be just as alert as somebody who went to bed at, at 10 at night. Hmm. So it's regularity that's important. Now, you talked about motor skills. You've seen such an increase for the athlete in motor skills. Tell us more about that. Why? Sure. Why is that true? There's something that happens in the brain that happens only after about six and a half or seven hours of continuous sleep. Uh, it's called sleep spindles that occur during a stage of sleep we call stage two sleep. These sleep spindles represent a cascade of calcium into the motor cortex of the brain, and that cascade of calcium binds motor 
chains of motor responses into a motor muscle memory. So, for example, if you're a golfer uh, and you want to try to hit the ball squarely, there are about 186 things that you have to do in the second and a half between the time you draw your driver back on the first tee and the moment of impact. And if you have to think of even four or five swing thoughts, you're never going to be able to hit the ball squarely. It has to be automatic. So what we and our colleagues at Harvard and MIT, University of California, have found that when you rehearse something like a three-pointer in basketball or a slap shot in the hockey or uh, a baseball swing, whatever it is, a, a, a figure skater who's trying to do a triple jump, when you rehearse it, when you're fully alert and awake and get it right, and that very night you sleep at least eight hours, the next day you will show a minimum of 20% improvement in that motor skill, and it's not unusual to see 40%. But the problem is we rehearse, we practice our putting or whatever it is, and then we don't get enough rest that night after we practice. And that motor skill never becomes part of permanent muscle memory. It's in short-term memory, and it dissipates because the brain has not had this cascade of calcium that places all of these sequential motor responses into the brain in permanent motor muscle memory. Now, your book is not a textbook or some kind of a clinical uh, explanation. Tell us about the format of your book. Well, that's a great question, Stephen, and thanks for asking that. Uh, we decided we can write scientific books. We have written scientific books or even textbook-type books for the layperson on sleep. Uh, they're available. I wrote Power Sleep years ago and a couple of years ago, Sleep for Success. We've even written children's books like Remy and the Brain Train. But this time we wanted to address the athlete. We know athletes don't have a lot of time or a lot of interest in maybe science, but we wanted to write a book uh, that could be read within an hour or so, easily digestible, lots of fun, but based on hard scientific findings and based on case histories uh, that we have actually experienced with our clients and with some sports psychologists who have been doing fairly similar things. So we wrote a fable, and this fable is about a NHL rookie in his second year, not playing very well up to his standards, afraid that he's going to get cut from his hockey team. And uh, he goes home for the summer, and he's kind of moody, and his kid sister says, you know, Mike, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? You're, you're, you're a couch potato. And he said, well, sis, my performance is degraded. I don't know what's wrong with me. And she said, you know, uh, you had a professor back in college who uh, talked all about sleep, and you had a great career in college. Uh, are you still following all his information? And Mike said, gee, you know, come to think of it, I'm not. And she said, aren't you going up to reunion in a couple of weeks? Uh, why don't you give him a call? So Mike gives his professor a call. They get together. They go over what Mike's been doing and not been doing. And uh, the professor sends him to uh, a nutritionist, somebody who's an expert in jet lag, and reminds him of all of the uh, things he should be doing, like using a machine that keeps track of every night of his life, of his uh, sleep life, uh, to find out if he is sleeping poorly and what the problems are. And uh, as the fable goes on, 
Uh, Mike is imploded with information. He begins to improve. I won't tell you the ending. It's an incredible ending, but it's actually based on uh, on real life. And we talk about other things in the book, like a little uh, uh, high school freshman up in northern Michigan. Her name's a real name, and we mention it in the book, is Amber Way. Uh, Amber is trying to make the cross-country and track teams as a freshman. Her coach says, well, you know, come out for the team. I'm not sure how much you're going to contribute as a freshman. Freshmen usually don't uh, do all that well. But uh, Amber hears uh, a sleep doctor talk about sleep the summer before her freshman year, ask him to monitor her sleep by giving her a gadget that will do that, learns the rules of good sleep hygiene from the sleep doctor, and uh, by the end of her freshman year, she's broken four school records in cross-country and track and is second in the state of Michigan. A true story, all because she has uh, followed the rules of good sleep practices. Well, you've uh, convinced me, uh, Dr. James B. Moss. Uh, you can also learn the 10 great sleep strategies. These are found in his book, The Golden Rules for Power Sleep, and the list goes on and on. Thank you so much, Doctor, for being with us. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Okay. Uh, you can go on Amazon.com. You can go on Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can uh, write, uh, get online with the publisher, Author House. I think the best way, the quickest way, is Amazon.com. They've got uh, copies. Uh, they have hardcover copies, and also it's available on uh, your uh, as an ebook on Nook, Kindle, and iPads. So uh, Amazon.com is probably the place. If you have any problems, uh, write, uh, email me and. Uh, my email uh, is moss, M-A-A-S, dot james at gmail.com. Be glad to answer your questions and uh, send you books. Well, this uh, flies in the face of everything you ever heard about sleep. You know, you don't get anything done when you sleep. Well, in this case, you sleep to win. Dr. James B. Moss, thank you again for being with us. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. 
The girlfriended principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back. To Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Healing Journey of My Bodacious Tatas, Healed by Grace and on a Budget, and the author, Venus DeMarco, with Lisa Smith, who helped her write the book. Uh, Venus joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Venus. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, you have a sense of humor right away. We understand that we can see it uh, in writing uh, with your title because we're talking about your literally journey and conquering breast cancer. Yes, we are, and conquering it without chemo, without uh, a mastectomy, and without radiation. Yes, uh, that is uh, obviously way out of the ordinary, way out of the traditional way that most people uh, deal with this kind of uh, just beyond comprehension uh, situation, because when you hear those words, you've got cancer, how did you feel that day? In fact, can you believe this, everyone? Good Friday, 2009. Well, you know, um, I do a speech called Is It the Fear of the Disease? Because once you're di- diagnosed, and I knew there was something wrong. I had a very large tumor, around nine centimeters. Um, I knew it for six to eight months before I went in. wasn't really in denial. I just had to, it had to be the right time for me. And, you know, God always has a plan for us. And you have, your head has to be in the right place to make a very important decisions about your life. So that first day, there was so much panic and craziness around me from the radiologist, the woman who wrote the prescription for the uh, mammogram. It was insane. I mean, insane. I uh, told them all that I needed my weekend to think, and I would, you know, they were like, you have to get to a cancer specialist today. There is such a large mass, and there's a smaller one underneath it. And I, I mean, it was insane, the fears that the medical, you know, community had. So... I came home. I think what people don't realize is they think you're in fear that first day, but you're actually in shock. Your body sort of takes you into shock. It's a way to protect yourself. But I found so many women would make decisions within 48 hours before ever giving themselves time to get healthy and to make a good decision. If you make a decision out of fear, you can never come back. A lot of pressure from the medical community to do what everyone seems to do, chemo, radiation, or, you know, one or the other, or both. Oh, and it's always cut the breast off. It's very rare. They may do a lumpectomy and then chemo or radiation, but the majority of the time they're trying to get 
the breast to be cut off, and now they're doing gene testing, and women are cutting their breasts off for prevention, which I call prevention by mutilation, which makes no sense because you cut the breasts off, you still can get cancer in the chest wall. You have to get to the root of the problem and really understand why either you have gotten cancer or how to prevent it. So I think that we have to be careful with our thoughts, you know, you are what you believe. So your book deals with the fallibility of the medical community? You know, it talks, this book is not really about me putting down anybody or um, attacking anybody. This book is more about my journey, and some of it's really funny, because I decided that I was going to do it all. I was going to be a human guinea pig. I was going to go out there while I was doing all of the things that I needed to do, which was to get into an alkaline state, really believe I was going to be healed, detoxing, finding the root of this problem, why I did get sick. It's not always what people think it is. And um, so I went and did all kinds of things, good and bad, because I wanted to be out, I wanted to show people what really works. And there are some people out there doing things that are not really going to help you. And by doing this and finishing my journey, you can actually heal from disease really inexpensively and not die. So it has some funny, really funny things in it because I do have a sense of humor and laughter is a great way to heal. Give us an example. Well, let's see. Um, I went to this woman. I actually went to her for a lymphatic massage because keeping your lymph system healthy is one of the most important things we can do. And I love to have lymphatic massages. She was a wonderful woman. But, you know, as soon as somebody hears you're going the natural route, especially when they're all in the holistic field, everybody wants to be the one to heal you. It's And uh, so instead of getting a lymphatic massage that day, she decided she was going to hang this crystal over my breast, and she was going to let it just pull that tumor right out of my breast. I thought her arm was going to fall off. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, she had great intentions, but if it was that simple, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, little things like that and just some of the journeys I took. I went to the Redneck Riviera and I worked with some awesome, awesome people. But it was really funny, too. But what they were doing was really good. But the whole living situation was hysterical. And these men were hysterical. Uh, the doctor looked just like their claws. And, um, you know, it was, it was just, it was, a, you know, I look back and, this whole journey has actually been a blessing. It really got me to change my life. You have any cancer today? Oh, no, I'm cancer-free. Wow. And I always will be. You know, I always say this affliction will never come upon me again, ever. How can I'm, sort of over, I'm sort of over cancer, you know? I just want people to understand you can prevent it. And that's really a part of your mission. It is. I call myself the prevention warrior. It's so, uh, it's so sad today because cancer is epidemic, and it, it seems like 
we're always treating the symptoms and not preventing it. Yes, and we don't get to the root of the problem. 98% of all disease is caused from, from thought, and um, that's been proven. And there's cellular memories that we have that we don't deal with. And women especially, we love to stuff things down and get on with it and take care of everybody else. And in my book and chapter, uh, Defeating Your Goliath, I really talk about what my Goliath was. And what was interesting is I was actually angry at somebody else, not the person I thought I was. But what started all of that started back in my childhood, and I had to really deal with things and forgive people. Because when we don't forgive other people, it stresses us out. It only hurts us. It never hurts the person we're not forgiving. Being angry and resentful are things that we have. That's the most important part of healing is forgiveness. And, you know, if I could just tell everybody today, being angry at someone is never worth it. Get over it, forgive them, and move on. Because you are not your past. You are not your genes. Your genes are not your destiny. We have so much control over our body, but we have to really look at the stress in our lives, too. Stress affects us very emotionally. I call it the big circle. So, for instance, if you're under a lot of stress and you're having bad thoughts, you tend to eat bad, you tend not to sleep, and you tend not to exercise, right? Now, if you're eating bad and you're overworking, not sleeping, not exercising, then you have bad thoughts. Does that make sense? It does. So... You know, I decided after 35 years to close my business. Um, now, I only had that business six years here in Texas, but I've been in the skincare field for 35 years. And it came a point where I said, you know, I need to concentrate on helping other people, getting my book out there, speaking publicly, um, doing consultations with people, helping just doing whatever I can, and you can't concentrate on five different things. So it was time to say goodbye to our career after 35 years that I loved. But again, it was about getting that stress out of my life, and it was worth it. It was hard to do. I mourned it for a year before I did it, and now I'm on my way to, you know, just helping people for the rest of my life and, le and living a very great life. So your story, you say, will educate and inspire to live a fuller, healthier life and to look for the possibilities of found along the road less traveled. Now, what do you mean by this road less traveled? Well, it's a road that most people go down, and that's taking charge of your life. And my road less traveled was... You know, most people, when they're given a diagnosis, they totally trust the medical field to take care of it. I think the medical field is great with helping um, save lives of babies and trauma, and if I had a broken arm or anything like that, that's where I would run, right to a doctor to set my arm to help me. When it comes to disease, I think we, we have doctors now that are overworked, tired, they're, um, they can lose their license if they don't. Uh, burn, poison, and cut. So, because cancer is big money, so to step back from that and to do your own research and to talk to other people who do um, know how to heal the body naturally and to give you great advice. You know, in this country, there are states. Now, as an adult, I could make my own choice, but there are states 
in the United States that if your child is diagnosed with cancer and you have no choice but to do what the doctor says, and they will take your child away and put you in jail. Hmm. My goodness, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. It's, it's really sad. Um, and if people want to look at the Brzezinski case in the 70s and what happened to him, and he was having amazing results healing people. Um, there's even a film out on it. It's very amazing what happens. There are doctors that are actually kicked out of this country, not for killing people, but for actually healing them naturally. And they end up having, they lose their medical license, have to go out of country to practice. You know, I'm going to say this probably many times in my life, but cancer is big, big business. Sure. Big business. Yes. That's why they have all these cancer hospitals now. They're just, well, well and they make them, Let me tell you, they make them so pretty. Well, they sure have a lot of money to make them that pretty. And, um, you know, the body is just amazing. We're just programmed to be very afraid of cancer. Right now, we both have cancer cells running around in our body. But guess what? Our immune system is going to break down and kill those uh, maverick cells so they don't become a cluster where a tumor is going to build around it to protect your body. So you are what you think. You are what you think. You are what you feel. And you are what you eat. You are what you think, eat, and drink. You bet. So that leads back to why you're drinking so much and eating so much. There's a much deeper problem, and that's what you're trying to help us with. Yes, and we need to clean up our diet. You know, I always say buying organic is a lot cheaper. Buy, pay for it now because what you'd have to pay for later is a lot more. Cancer is a lot more expensive than buying organic. It's, it, you know, we have really got to watch our water supply. I filter all my water. Um, I even give my dog filtered water. Um, you know, animals are getting cancer now, too. Animals didn't get cancer before, but now with all the vaccines that we give our dogs, with some of the dog food that's out there, you know, the water they're drinking. You know, I, I mean, this will sound very um, conspiracy theory, but it's almost like a population control it's really bad. We are going to lose a generation of young girls if we don't take charge of this now, change their diet, make them go to sleep. Children do not go to bed anymore. Do you know that children will stay up till 2 in the morning and get up and go to school the next day? But before they go to sleep, they're watching movies on their computer, on their lap. They never go into REM sleep. All these childhood diseases now, like attention deficit, you know, whatever else they're coming up with. This is from not sleeping and eating so much sugar. Let's get the sugar. That's the favorite food of cancer, by the way, is sugar. Sure. Yes. And, you know, when you're eating fast food, a McDonald's hamburger bun has a tablespoon of sugar in it. Well, your book, This Journey of Sickness Back to Health, as you put it, it will make you laugh, cry, and go, Wow. That's right. That's what I hope it does. Well, you certainly uh, are the wild lady with diagnosed with breast cancer, and here you are cancer-free, and you didn't do what they wanted you to do. No, because the survival rate is very low. The different people that you talk about, it can be from 2.1 to 5%. So I'm going to give you an example. If 2,600 women get breast cancer and go the conventional route, that is, you know, mastectomy and chemo or radiation, 
in five years, only 35 of those women are alive. Wow. Yes. That's now, they startling. may be called breast yeah. cancer survivors, but they died from lung cancer, bone cancer. You know, they got other cancers because um, I believe that chemo does not kill cancer cells. It actually empowers it to mutate and come back stronger mm. because it robs the body of all the oxygen. It kills all the good cells. And cancer cells thrive on an anaerobic environment. So that's why it's so important to keep oxygenated, to get sugar out of your life, to stay in an alkaline state, to not get stressed. Um, And every time we eat sugar, it's like it causes cancer cells to have a party. They just light up and go to town and start multiplying and Mm -hmm. having a good old time. That's why they inject you with sugar before they do PET scans because it will light every bit of cancer up in your body. Well, you have all the facts, that's for sure. And your book, The Healing Journey of My Bodacious Tatas, I don't think we'll forget that title, Healed by Grace (laughs) and on a Budget. Venus DeMarco, and Lisa Smith helped her write it. Venus, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it on Amazon.com, AuthorHouse.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. It comes in paperback, hardback, ebook, Kindle, anything you want. Well, thank you so much, Venus, for, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Time After Time, 
a memoir. And the author is Susan D. Anderson. And Susan joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Susan. Hi, Stu. How are you doing? Very good to have you with us. You say this about your book. I grew up during the 50s when nuclear families living in the suburbs were thought to be giving their children the ideal life. But the nuclear family was also insular, protected from the judgments of others by the belief that parents had the right to raise their children as they saw fit. Consequently, my mother was able to go to great extremes in plain view of others. Your mother was just emotionally abusive to you. That's right. I think she had um, some issues with some kind of inner rage herself that it wasn't, also in the 50s, it wasn't polite or or considered even for women homemakers, the homemakers in the family, to be enraged, to have uh, tense emotions. They were just supposed to be kind of mellowed out, you know. But I think she was enraged about something, and it found its way out with me. Yeah, the Ozzie and Harriet generation, right? That was on TV. I think it hit me several times. Certainly when I found out about Ozzie and Harriet, because I wasn't watching TV as a kid, but later I did. And then when Ronald Reagan was elected, there was an awful lot of discussion about going back to the nuclear family and how wonderful the nuclear family was. And I could just feel the bile rising uh, from all those old memories of, mm. and wanting to wanting to counter that and say, wait a minute, it wasn't so wonderful for everybody. So you never discovered why your mother was that way? Unfortunately, no. I didn't discover why, and none of the relatives were able to discover why. And that's a tragedy. And I don't think my mother knew. There's a point in the book where my most beloved relative, the one who loves me to pieces, was alone with Priscilla, my mother, and asked her point blank, why do you treat Susan the way you do? And my mother said, I don't know. When you think back, when you go way back into your memory, uh, how old were you when you started to really feel this... uh, this abusive, abusive, I don't know what to call it, just this uh, abusive uh, behavior by your mom. The tenor, yeah, her tenor towards me. Yeah. Um, I, I was a toddler. I remember having the white shoes on, uh, the white toddler shoes, and we had just been out um, to go to the photographer for one of our regularly scheduled sessions. Um, my father and his family were avid photographers, and so my older sister and I were went, I think, every six months to have a photograph taken, a studio photograph taken. And on the way there, uh, there I was in a stroller, and there, were, there was a, a large, uh, angry, barking dog that came at us. And my, my sister got scared out of her wits, and and I, I got tumbled out of the stroller in all the confusion and uh, uh, ripped off a nail in the process. And I remember that day, that started my memory because when we got home, my mother lifted me up to the kitchen counter and uh, washed the wound and put a Band-Aid on it. 
and then, you know, said to me, uh, don't let me see you picking at that. I want, I want to see that on there when your daddy gets home tonight or else you'll get a spanking that you won't forget and things like that, and then put me back down on the floor. But I stayed where she put me, looking up at her, thinking, wow, that was wonderful. I just had some mothering from my mother, and I wanted to remember the moment so badly that I just kind of stood there stuck still and tried to remember every part about it. Because you never felt that she really loved you? It was so unusual for her to mother me. Usually, you know, if I tumbled or fell or did anything, it was like, serves you right. You know, I told you not to do what this, or I told you not to do that. Serves you right. Stop your crying. So you pretty much felt that you weren't worth much of anything. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And what kind of language do you remember? You know, what kind of phrases that kind of stuck with you? Oh, well, here's one of her favorites was helpless, hopeless, useless. So obviously, if you hear that all the time, you do feel like you're hopeless and useless. You do, and I think something in me struggled against that, too. I, I just, I don't think that I bought it. Um, and certainly at times I did. I'm a, I'm a small child, and I don't have all the mental and emotional resources to combat it. But at some point, and in some ways very early on, I didn't buy that label. I knew I was a good kid, and I was, in the, and the worse she made me out to be, the harder I worked to be a really, really good kid. So, you know, it's some some part of me didn't buy into that. Uh, some part of me probably probably did. I mean, the self worth was pretty low a lot of the times. And I think the other expression that I heard a lot was something like. Um, What's with that sad sack look? You know, get that look off your face. You haven't got anything to be sad about. So you learn not to show what you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I was gifted with a better sense of self than that. So um, that stood me in good, set, good stead. That got you through it. It did. Now, when you talk about emotional abuse, you say there's two distinct phenomena in this category of emotional abuse. So explain that. I discovered this through writing the the memoir, by the way. And one form is emotional deprivation, and that is where you withhold any acknowledgement of the person, any regard for them. In my mother's case, refusing to say hello, goodbye, how was your day? anything about me, you know, inquiring about my well-being or my activities, if I went to talk to her about uh, what I was doing with my playmates in the neighborhood, it was, I don't, I don't want to hear that, I'm not interested in that, and just shut it down. So de- deprivation, the, the first form, the deprivation, is withholding from somebody any emotional level to experience, any emotional contours to it. The other form is more deliberate. deliberate. It's a, a, um, a kind of an emotional aggressiveness where the an emotional, I would call this form emotional abuse, the outright emotional abuse, is where the, the perpetrator, if you will, designs uh, certain behaviors, events, outcomes that they know will really hurt the person emotionally. It's a more active form. And in thinking about this, through writing the memoir, 
I came to realize that I have something to say to this the school age population, parents, children, and teachers who are now dealing with bullying in schools. This is exactly what bullies do in schools, whether they're elementary age, junior high age, high school age. They do both these forms of emotional abuse, the, the one that's active and the one that's a deprivation. We can all relate and understand uh, more fully about physical abuse, of course, and and uh, obviously the just the awful condition in the awful uh, tragic uh, condition of sexual abuse. But emotional abuse is, is like you point out, is is uh, you know it has its own versions uh, defined by, for that individual. Your your mother just kind of knew your weak points? you think she just went after him? I don't think it was so much weak points. I think she was ingenious and creative. She knew her household. She knew the routines. She knew her role. She knew everybody's comings and goings. I think from time to time she knew that me as a kid or any kid would want certain things that she could deprive me of. But more to the point, um, uh, I think anyone who is emotionally abusive isn't in some way a bully and they become ingenious and they just invent the punishments and the deprivation as they go along. That's certainly what my mother did. It just, I don't think she, she knew ahead of time, like when I was three and four and five years old, what she was going to do. But as every day unfolded, she thought of things. And we always believe, we you know back then especially, we wanted to believe if there was affluence, then everything was okay. Oh well, you mean when you're in privileged setting like that, right? There's plenty of plenty of exactly. money, plenty of education, plenty of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but to go back to um, uh, to the you know, you said earlier, Stu, that. Um, we have come to learn quite a bit about the signs and definite uh, behaviors that go with sexual abuse and the definite signs and behaviors that go with physical abuse, but we do not have that for emotional abuse. And, And the question you asked is exactly why. It's because there is no one thing that you can point to or that you can claim there's not even a cluster of things that you can say this is it because each abuser is inventive and genius and designs things sort of day by day, situation by situation, person by person. So we don't have a nice little checklist of things that we can look for in this situation and, you know, have some advice about that, which is we need to teach people to document anything and everything that they can um, because it's the accumulation of data that makes clear when emotional abuse is going on. Where was your father? Where were your neighbors, friends, extended family to protect you? Well, my father was a devout Christian scientist, and Christian scientists believe that if you correct your thinking and you align your thinking with all that's godly and good, then you will see everything that's been created, everything that's happening is good. And he 
that's the religion he gave me, and he wanted me to, to learn how to fix my thinking, if you will, so that I would see the situation as good, so that I would see that my mother was a good person who loved me. And he, he reinforced that message as often as he could. But also, he made his world, his own world. He just worked constantly on his way of thinking about things as a devout Christian scientist so that he did not see evil. He did not see harm. He didn't see anything bad happening. And when relatives who were quite upset about the way my mother treated me, the aunts and uncles and all that, when they would confront him, this was, and they did early on, and then they kind of gave up, they'd confront him and say, Ed, you have to do something about Priscilla's way of dealing with Susan. And he would say something very mild, maybe like, well, we'll see. But really what he was thinking was, they're wrong. I know they're wrong. Priscilla is a good, good woman, a good mother, and everything's fine. As you look at your whole life, what kind of an impact did all of that have on you through your, through your life? Well, there's so many dimensions to that. Um, I think because I, one of my primary battles was in junior high arguing for the fact that I wanted to go to college. That was a battle I finally won by saying I would be a teacher, which my mother thought was okay, as opposed to some of the other ideas I'd had. So I became a teacher, and I became the best teacher in the world, if you will. I mean, I did the same thing I'd done as a kid to win my mother's love. I just tried to be, you know, the perfectionist at everything I did as a teacher, and I built up my credentials and my knowledge and my skills and went on to get a doctorate and teach other teachers. So, and you know, that was, and I didn't realize that I was doing that, trying to win my mother's approval until I was in my late 40s, actually, in my 40s, I would say. Um, so that's one way that it influenced me. But I think um, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, the wounds from 18 years of living with my mother, uh, I would have to say, took 50 years to undo. I'm going to be turning 68 this year, and it really has taken a lifetime to become myself and not the person that grew up in, in that way. We've been listening to Susan Anderson. She is the author of her book, Time After Time, a memoir. Susan, tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's available through Barnes & Noble, and it's available on Amazon, and it's available through AuthorHouse. They, all three of those places have it as hardcover, softcover, and an e-book. Thank you. Uh, I also have a website, Thunder, www.thunderlassiexpress.com, and you can find the links to my book on that website. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for being with us on Author Talk. <laughs>